Welcome this morning. We're uh, diving into our third week now. Yes, week three of Pastor 411. Yeah. Yeah. So last week was good. Again, we had lots of good feedback after the service and um, lots of good conversation happening afterwards. Uh, we have four questions today. We have right? yep, four questions. We can fit in. Two of them are a little bit longer. So yeah. it had to limit the number of questions a little bit, but I think they're good ones. Yeah. Yep. So this is our second last week of doing it. Next week is going to be our last week of doing Pastor 411. And uh, we're going to cram in a bunch of questions next week. Yeah. Yeah, we got some cleanup to do. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. get through that. Yeah. And that's from not only this year, but past years, people sending in questions, right? Yeah. There's a couple I've been meaning to get to over the last while, and we're going to throw some of those in there. So I, I always save the questions from each year. So I've actually got about four years worth of questions yeah. <laughs> that we haven't got to. Yeah. We're going to cover a few extra ones next week. Yeah. And if you've sent follow up questions uh, to Mark or, or Andrew or the office about some, some of the things we've talked about, this year with Pastor 411, we'll have a chance to answer some of those as well. Yeah, absolutely. So if you do have the follow-ups, we've got some. Uh, we'll cover some of those next week. If you have any follow-ups or further questions from things we've covered so far or even today, feel free to send those in. We'll try and get through that a bit of a speed round next week. We'll yeah. see. Um, yeah, if the tech works, maybe we have a countdown clock. Even. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But I'm also going to cover two primary questions next week that you don't want to miss. We're going to dedicate a good portion of the time just to two questions. One, what is hell like? And the second one, what is heaven like? So those will be two big questions we cover next week. I'm sure you don't want to miss at all. So that's right. next week. Yeah. Right this week. This week, we'll jump into our first question. Uh, and it's a popular question. That one is, what will our resurrected bodies look like? Right. Yes. This is something that a lot of people have wondered about, uh, and, and not just recently. I've received this question a couple of times from people, but even like throughout time, this has been, been asked so much so that Paul actually directly responds to this in one of his letters in, uh, in, uh, that he sent to the church in Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't read the whole chapter, but you can read that yourself in entirety later if you want to. He, he talks about this extensively. And in verse 35, he says, some will ask the question, and here's the question, how are the dead raised, or, or what kind of bodies do they come from? And in the course of that conversation he has in chapter 15, he explains it through sort of a planting analogy, where he compares our earthly bodies to our heavenly bodies in terms of our earthly bodies are planted in the ground like a seed, and just as any seed you plant in the ground this spring, the seed you plant determines what kind of seedling sprouts up. And so based upon the earthly body that's sown, the heavenly body is, is grown from that now, or emerges from that. So from this, we can kind of extrapolate that our heavenly bodies will be similar to our earthly bodies. Now, you might grumble a bit about that because not all of us like our earthly bodies, but they're going to be better. So let me explain why they're better. Uh, specifically in verse 42 through 44, he says this. He says, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in the natural body. It is raised in the spiritual body. So what do these, what do these kind of four things mean? Number one, the, the perishable is imperishable. Well, we know this. Currently, the bodies that, that we have are subject to things like age and ache and disease and subsequently all of us to death. Well, the new bodies will be raised imperishable, meaning they're not subject to these things anymore. So there is no more cancer and diabetes or needs for wheelchairs or blindness, things like that. We will never experience like sickness and decay deterioration. I can guarantee you there is no COVID in those bodies. And we will never have to worry about dying. 
They are uh, imperishable. Dishonor to honor or dishonor to glory. Well, here's what this one refers to. See, because sin is present in the world around us, it has brought dishonor into our current bodies. Now, remember, back in the very original creation story, Adam and Eve were created in perfect, you know, in perfect form, perfect image of God. And it even says that they had no consequences of sin. There, there was no sin. It said even, uh, I think the, the language is they were, they were naked and they had no shame. There was no guilt. Like, no, not shame and guilt existed in that case. But then as soon as sin enters into the equation, what happens? All of a sudden, they realize that they were naked and they felt shame. Guilt came in. They covered themselves and hid. Because all of a sudden, their bodies had entered into the state of dishonor. So... Here's what we can understand from that, is that our resurrected perfect bodies will no longer be subject to the conditions of sin, which means we'll no longer feel shame, which means we'll probably all be naked in heaven. Oh. It, it doesn't actually say that. Okay, good. <laughs> actually, what it says is that we'll actually clothed in white with robes of, robes of white and gold, waist, I think, yeah, so we won't be naked. It's not okay. like a nudist colony up in heaven. <laughs> so, but, but seriously... Uh, we will be free from temptation and the implications of sin, which means we will no longer feel shame or be able to be shamed. Mm. Why? Not, not because of our bodies, but because we'll be free from any of those actions that will lead to sort of shame and guilt. Then the third one, weakness, uh, raised in power. Well, for all the reasons I just mentioned, <laughs> our bodies are weak. They are increasingly fragile. They are susceptible to disease. They are subject to temptation and sin. But one day that will no longer be the case. One day our spiritual bodies will be perfectly suited to live in heaven and perfectly honorable and equipped to, uh, to do what they're created to do, which is to, to live in eternity and praise and honor our creator mm -hmm. in eternity. And so probably the best idea, the best look of what this looks like is, what would you say, Jesus' resurrected body? Absolutely. It's yeah. like really the only glimpse we have of it, but it's a, great, it's yeah. a great example. And so if you consider at the end of the Gospels, when it talks about Jesus' interactions with his disciples, we can see some of these things taking place. Like, for example, after Jesus' resurrection, people recognized him. So they, they, they knew it was him. So we can, we can understand from that that our bodies will be the same type and same ethnicity and same gender and, and all those sorts of things, which is good news because that means that when we see each other in heaven or family or friends, we will recognize them. And they'll recognize us. And so we'll still have that, that familiarity that can exist. But here's some more good news for you about it is that our bodies, as I've been saying, will look similar, but they have to, by necessity, be minus anything that is unhealthy. You know what's unhealthy? That extra weight we're carrying around. So, <laughs> so I think it's safe to assume we'll all be on the heaven diet where we'll all be the proper size and weight for our particular body type. Amen? <laughs> there we go. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news. So, uh, and one other question that comes up around this is when Jesus was resurrected, he was the same age as well. And that leads to a question of, well, how, like, like what stage of life, what, what age will we be? If we die when we're 90, are we, are we 90 forever? Mm -hmm. uh, or if we die when we're 13, are we stuck in perpetual puberty forever? Like, what, what does, how does that kind of work? And some people who think about this, they, they assume that people will somewhat, you know, kind of rewind back to the prime of life, you know, late 20s. Some will kind of fast forward to maybe 33, roughly the same age that Jesus was. We, we don't really know. Um, but one of the implications, if that is the case, is that means there wouldn't be any children in heaven. 
It also means there wouldn't be any seniors in heaven. And if there's no seniors in heaven, that means there's also no Swiss Shelley, which I'm not sure if you can understand that one. So, so we don't have all the, questions, all the answers to these, but uh, I can tell you that our bodies will be similar but better and perfectly suited for life in eternity. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Maybe no Swiss Chalet, though. Maybe no Swiss Chalet, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's move to our next question. Um, and this was a bit of a tougher question. It is, yeah. It's the first bigger one yeah. today. So when we have two big ones that we're going to cover today. Yeah. This is one of them. Yeah. So um, we live in COVID times. We're going to call it like it is. And unfortunately, there are negative effects to that, mm-hmm. and some of which affects businesses and um, the way of which we're able to receive income, right? And so uh, the question then becomes, uh, when times are tough financially, um, how do we decide how much to tithe? Yeah. This is a question I've been asked, uh, you know, off and on over the last year. Mm Because as you've mentioned, Zach, a lot of people have been financially impacted by COVID. So I'm going to take a minute and and explain this one. But first of all, just understanding that some of the principles I'm going to share with you actually are applicable to any season that we find ourselves in financially. So let's first of all define that term tithe. Uh, A tithe is the Old Testament requirement God gave to his people who were wanting to live a faithful life to him to provide a tenth of their income towards the Lord. Now, this was not just about supporting the needs of the priests and the temple and the sacrifices and and what was required for worship. It was also very clearly understood by these people that this was to be a regular act of praise and worship. That their giving was showing an act of gratitude, of thankfulness, and faithfulness to God. Uh, How does that work? Well, they would show thanks to him by giving back to him, acknowledging that everything that they've received is from him, and so giving it back to him is a way of thanking him for what they've received. And it was an act of faith, because by giving to God, in particular giving the first fruits, the first portion to God, it was an act of faith showing that you would trust for him to provide for you beyond that moment. If you just gave him kind of the leftovers, it's not really an act of faith, it's an act of surplus. Mm -hmm. But by giving him the first, by giving to him before we make sure we have enough, it's enough to say, God, I trust you to provide for all of my needs, and so I worship you and I give it to you as an act of faith. Now, that was the Old Testament uh, system that existed. In the New Testament, there's also extensive teaching about money and tithing, giving to the church, but there is no verses that compel us to give 10% in the same fashion as the Old Testament. What we do find, though, is there is strong principles presented on the importance of continuing to give as an act of worship and as an act of faith. That is what really carries through into the New Testament. And so, you know, two of these principles, for example, uh, apply, as I said, to all seasons, whether it's a time of, of extended blessing or if it's a time of, of struggle that we have. And so hopefully this will answer that question for, for all of us, in particular those who might be going through uh, a time of reduced income or, or certainty and stability in their finances. And so the first two principles uh, apply, uh, appear uh, at the end of, again, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, where he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection needs to be made. That that talk about a collection needing to be made means if Paul arrives at the church and they haven't got enough money, he's going to have to call the other churches to send money to cover the needs, and nobody wants to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. So so here's the first principle. He says here to give regularly, uh, weekly, monthly, whatever sort of regular 
uh, pay that people receive is a good system to use also for giving to the Lord's work at the church. And this is to be part of a regular act of worship. Just like any spiritual practice that we have, the purpose is intended to draw our attention, our thankfulness, and our praise to God on a regular basis. Think about in other areas of your spiritual life. Nobody plans a 24-hour prayer vigil and then says, I'm good the other 364 for the year. I'm just going to have my one day a year intense prayer and then I'm good for the rest of the year. We know that's not how prayer works. No one has, uh, is satisfied with their Bible reading when they sit down and just read the Bible in one sitting and then go, I'm good for the year. No, we, we break it down into sections. No one is satisfied with the devotional time when they simply just do it when they feel like it. In those moments, great, it's good that it's happening, but nobody has ever come to me in my 15 years of being a pastor and say, you know, whenever I feel like it, I do it, and I'm satisfied with that. Why is there a lack of satisfaction? Because it's not this regular engagement of turning our attention of thankfulness and worship to God. So practically speaking, with our, all of our spiritual disciplines, whether it's Bible reading, prayer, attending worship services, or in this case, giving to God's ministries through finances, it's easier to do it on a regular basis, but also it's more in keeping with the purpose that exists behind why this happens. Now, the second principle we see in this verse is that we're to give proportionately. And, and this means just simply in, we give in keeping with how much we have. Now, we can go to the Lord and give all sorts of things, you know, our time and our talent. Uh, but this is unique. This is a specific language and instruction used here that refers to our resources. And it's right to worship God with our time and with our talent. But those are not sort of a substitute for worshiping him with the financial and the monetary gifts that he gives us. Uh, this is a specific uh, you know, instruction towards that particular type of worship. Now, during COVID, there are some people who have had very stable incomes and situations. There are some places who have even, you know, surprisingly, even flourished. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can think of any, if you think of any businesses or people you've encountered that have uh, flourished Well, definitely well, people are at home, and so delivery companies oh. are sending stuff, right? I'm sure you get lots of Amazon boxes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we were having a chat about this earlier in the week a bit. That Yeah, like delivery companies, food delivery companies, they are businesses booming yeah. for them. So there are some places, some pockets where things are going well. But that's not everyone's story by any means. There are many who have had reduced wages, who have uh, commissions cut off, had to work less days out of the week, you know, bonuses, just outright layoffs that have happened. And this is, I think, an important principle in that situation is that we're to give proportionately. That means if your money goes down, it's not unreasonable for your giving to go down then as well. And, and, and hear me, as, as, as a pastor of this church saying, you have permission to stop giving if you find yourself in a really trying situation. If it legitimately comes down to a matter of, I can't put food on the table because of this, yeah, put food on the table. Like, like, like look after those things. That's fine. Even better yet, let us know of the struggle and let us come alongside you and support you in this time. Let this be a season of receiving from the church instead of, instead of giving to the church. That, that is appropriate, and as this says, it, it's proportionate to the situation you find yourselves in. So those would be the first two, the first two principles. Yeah. So we got give regularly and we got regularly. give pro- pro- proportionally. proportionally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else do we have? Right, so two other ones we'll cover really quickly. Again, from Paul's letters, uh, this time in the second letter he sent to Corinth, where, where he simply says this, um, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Third principle here, give voluntarily. Uh, what you give is between you and God. Heed his convictions, though. 
however he is leading you, guiding you, step into that. Even if it doesn't make sense in the moment, if he's leading you to a certain direction, trust him in that. I have a responsibility as a pastor to bring these things to your attention, to, to challenge you in these things. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to force you to do anything. You know, we probably have all heard stories about churches who do force that or, or make this too significant of an issue, and they end up getting a bad name, and rightfully so, because they make it more about the money than about the worship. I, I encourage you and bring this to your attention, not because I want something from you, but because I want something for you. What I want for you, I want you to experience the full richness and the blessings of God. I want you to experience the joy and pleasure of worshiping him in this fashion and allowing him to be the Lord of your life in this fashion. Which leads to the fourth principle is that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's this posture of praise and thanksgiving. That, that's what this is referring to here. And now that doesn't mean that you are cheerful about how the church is going or about the fact that the implications of COVID upon the church. It's not about that. If, if people kind of give and stop giving based upon how happy or unhappy they are with the church, that actually weaponizes your finances towards the church, which is completely contrary to an act of worship. But what does this talk about here? It talks about being cheerful in the Lord. Understanding that he has given us, he has blessed us, and we can be thankful and praise him with what he has given us and do so as an act of worship. So, uh, tying this all up, there's no specific amount that I'm saying that a person has to give or a specific, a specific percentage as we see in the Old Testament. I encourage you to consider this to give what you have decided in your heart between you and God to make right. If some people are struggling during these COVID times that's impacting you, I encourage you to try to continue to worship God, even if it's as simple as just as, as a $5 bill or something like that. Not, not for the sake of the monetary value, but for the sake of the ongoing regular act of worship. But if that is even a struggle, consider pulling back even from that for a time being. But there's also others here who God has so richly blessed that you know a 10% margin is not nearly even the realm of what I believe God may be calling some people to, to give and how they honor him with that part of their lives. So, uh, so to be mindful of that. Yeah, for sure. So to review, we got give regularly, proportionally, voluntarily, and cheerfully. Yes, absolutely. But not because the church needs it, but because God has blessed you with it and you want to worship him with it. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Okay. Let's move on to our next question. Um, this is, again, a question that has come up a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that question is, is it okay for Christians to be cremated? Yeah. This is an interesting question. I find that this is a question that there's one group of people, uh, a bit of an older generation, ask a lot. Because I think there used to be a season of teaching that happened on this. And then there's a group of people who have never even known this is a question to ask or to consider. Um, so I, I think in the past there was some teaching on this. And it was, it was taught that it's wrong to be cremated. But I don't know the basis of that. Um, I, I do know this, though, that there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits people from being cremated. It is true that uh, in the ancient Near East, the, most cultures the Bible time would bury people in tombs, uh, in caves, or in the ground. That was the common practice of the time, for sure. And there are some negative occurrences where, where bodies or bones were burnt, and there's some negative connotations to that. But, but when you look at what was going on in those situations, that wasn't about just dealing with the deceased. That was about sacrificing people, or that was about trying to desecrate a body, which is a whole separate thing than we're, we're talking about here. There's also sometimes objections about this because it's felt that, that um, 
that cremating a body is somehow dishonoring to the body because it's created in the image of God. But I think that actually um, misunderstands what it means to be created in the image of God. It's not about the physical body to be in his image. Uh, and then the other common objection that comes up for this sometimes is that, well, if we consume the body in fire, then, then it won't be able to be re- re- resurrected and united with its spirit at, at the time of the resurrection. Uh, I, which... I'm not sure that burning the body is going to cause God problems at that particular time. Because whether a body is burned on a funeral pyre or if it's buried in the ground, in all those cases, eventually, just natural process, it turns to dust. That's just the natural process of things. And um, that's, it's even inherent to what is talked about in Genesis 3.19, where, uh, where when God is speaking out kind of the curses, the reality upon which people are going to live under, he says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat um, your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Whether there's fire involved or not, that's a natural process that happens for people. If you've ever been to a graveside service, perhaps you've seen this verse or seen this done, where where um, they will place sand on, on the casket and the cross, or they'll throw some dirt into the grave, as, as the minister or priest who's overseeing the service will say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's, uh, it's kind of what this, that verse and that activity is all referring to. Uh, a little bit of a side note, I remember the story of a young pastor who was doing his first graveside, <laughs> and uh, he was very uncomfortable with the whole concept of death. He was new into his ministry, and it came to this part of the service at the graveside where where they, they, they threw some dirt into the, into the grave, and, and he could feel the weight and the tension of the mourning family. And so as they threw the dirt in, he said these words. He said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But then to break the tension, he felt it would be appropriate to add on, I hope this coffin doesn't rust. And it, uh, Yikes. it didn't go well. <laughs> so he did that once and once only. <laughs> so, uh, anywho, it's a true verse and a true principle for whether a person is, you know, buried centuries ago, uh, whether a person, uh, for example, a Christian who was burned at the stake for their faith, we certainly think that they should uh, be part of part of eternity, uh, or a person who's cremated. Uh, I, I believe that if God has the power to create ex nihilo, which means he can create all that is out of nothing, that he has the power to give us a spiritual body after our death. I, I don't think cremation is going to foil his plans mm. if he has that extent of power. So uh, I don't believe that cremation in any way kind of dishonors the body or God. Uh, I think God will honor a choice if we honestly examine this and, and make a, a decision reverent of who he is. Uh, but on a practical level, this is something uh, for you to talk to your families about. Uh, if you're doing any sort of estate planning or end-of-life planning, this is one of those topics that doesn't always come up uh, that is important to, to let your family know what your wishes are on this one. Mm-hmm. Very good. We're going to jump to our final question sure. for today. Um, and it's another big one. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a good one. So that question is, what may God's purpose be in allowing the COVID pandemic? Yeah. Uh, this is a good one that I received a couple weeks ago and had to think about for a while. Because Scripture reveals God's sovereignty very clearly. And that nothing is beyond God's control or beyond his awareness. In fact, we can easily glean from Scripture that he who stilled the storm could evaporate this virus with one word. So there's no simple answer here at all. 
Uh, and I certainly do not claim to have any definitive answer to this question. But I, uh, I do want to share a few thoughts with you. Uh, a few things that I've observed and experienced over the last year that may, uh, may give some level of response to this one. Because uh, while it's true that God is sovereign ruler over all things, that he ordains all things that happen, we also know that we remain greatly unaware of all aspects of God's purposes according to his will. Uh, but even though we remain greatly unaware of many of his purposes, we still are people of faith. We still have faith and trust in things like Romans 8.28 that says, we know that all things work for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. So to further understand how that applies here, how um, something like this could be happening, and yet we could say that God is sovereign. We have to understand the nature of God's will before we can get any deeper into that. And God's will can be divided up into two types. There's what's referred to as his efficacious will and his permissive will. I'll briefly explain those for you. His efficacious will are some events that happen in history that God directly decrees that he is involved directly in, that directly contribute to the fulfillment of his ultimate sovereign will. An example of this, we see it in, in creation, for example. God said, God directly acted and said, let there be light, and there was light. Right? However all that happened and took place, that was a direct action of God's efficacious will, and he willed it into existence. And because God was directly involved in it, it also is good and brings him pleasure. And how does that verse finish? It says, and God saw that the light was good. So there's an aspect of events that happen under the, under the understanding of God's sovereignty where it is his efficacious will, which means he directly is involved in it. It is pure as he is pure, brings him pleasure, and it is purely holy good. There's also, we, now, before we go further, we know that that's not completely going to describe the world we live in, which is why we also need to understand that there's this thing called his permissive will. Now, God's permissive will refers to events that happen that indirectly fulfill the will of God, which means he didn't cause them, but very minimum, he permitted them. Okay? And this emerges from the necessity of free will existing in the world around us. The whole conversation of free will will save for another day, but if we can just accept for today that free will exists by necessity, and because free will exists, there needs to be a permissive nature to God's will that he doesn't cause, but he allows to take place. And in the nature of his permissive will, some of the activities that happen do not cause him pleasure. But they are kept within the boundaries of God's sovereign will. Because nothing can deviate from God's sovereign will because ultimately he is sovereign over all. So let me give an example of how this fits together. I think it will make sense for you. Remember a few months ago we were studying the story of Joseph uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph and his brothers. Now it was God's sovereign will that Joseph would end up in a place of authority to save all of God's people. That was his sovereign will. That was the end result that everything was working and moving towards. And there are some aspects, events in that story, where it could be argued that God's efficacious will came into a play, such as God giving Joseph the interpretation of the dreams, um, God allowing the right time at the right place for certain events to take place, that he was directly involved in moving from point A to point B, being the salvation of God's people from the famine. God was directly involved in moving that forward. 
But at the same time, God's permissive will can be seen in it as well because God allowed Joseph's brothers to, uh, to plot against Joseph, to strip him and throw him into a pit, to sell him into slavery, and to lie to their dad about it. Those things were not of God because those are all sinful activities that the brothers engaged in, except they all served to move the plot towards the full fulfillment of what God's sovereign will was. So there are some things in that story where God intentionally was involved in, such as the interpreting of the dreams, but there's other things that he permitted to take place, but they still advanced towards the ultimate fulfillment of God's will being fulfilled in saving God's people. And we see this all kind of come together at a final point in Genesis 50-20, where Joseph and his brothers finally talk about all this. And, and Joseph says to them in Genesis 50-20, he says, you intended to harm me, those sinful actions that they engaged in, but advance the story. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, his will, his ultimate sovereign plan. What is that? The saving of many lives. So, I want to establish all that. that As we talk about how could God allow these things, there's different aspects to what do we mean when we say how can he allow something like this to happen. I would summarize this all by saying that God does not directly cause everything, but everything is moving in the direction of God's will. So, I do not believe that God caused COVID as part of his efficacious will. It's not a plague that he has brought upon the land as part of his efficacious will. I do believe it is part of his permissive will. But even though it's part of his permissive will, all things are ultimately moving towards God's ultimate goal for us still. Even in light of the challenges, struggles, and trials we're going through right now, it is all still moving towards his ultimate goal for us. So what is that ultimate goal? The ultimate goal we read time and time again in, in Scripture, especially in, in, in Ephesians 4, is simply this is to take people from their sin-dead lives and to make them spiritually alive, fully alive in Jesus. That is the ultimate, God's ultimate goal for us. And that as we find ourselves on that journey from being spiritually dead, sin-dead, to alive in Christ, we then return glory to him for everything that happened in the course of that taking place. So just like Joseph's story... Ultimately, the goal was to bring salvation to his people, even in the story in which we're living. This still the same purpose, ultimately to bring salvation to all people, that those people who are saved would return glory to God. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's, an, there, there's an efficacious aspect, but I think we're talking about a, a permissive aspect, that he has permitted it to exist. But it's all moving towards his ultimate goal still. Yeah. So the two wills are good, but how does that permissive will, of what we're speaking about now, actually apply yeah. to what we're living in right now. Yeah, to the pandemic specifically. Yeah. So here's, here's a few things that I've noticed that all, I think, are pointing and moving uh, people, society, and the church towards that ultimate goal in, in the days in which we're currently living. Um, first of all, we can look throughout history and see that any time a significant trial comes, a, comes upon a people, God is using it either intentionally or through his redemption to get people's attention off themselves and on to him. That's a constant thing that happens in times of trial in, uh, of, of this nature and this scope. And it's happening now. Millions of people are asking this very question that we're looking at right now. And by the sheer fact that they're asking this question is evidence that it has taken their minds to the things of God. 
And for some people, it leads them to a point of being challenged to stop trusting in themselves because they find themselves in a helpless state and to start trusting and placing their faith in Jesus. For others, it's a call of refinement. It's a call of the faithful, you know, prior to the season in which we're living, to press in to the challenge of the days. And as it says in James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience many trials of different kinds. Why? Because that leads to perseverance. Perseverance leads to maturity. Maturity leads to you not lacking anything. And so whether it's a person of faith or a person who does not yet have a faith, in times like this, it draws people's attention off of themselves and on to him. So that's one thing. To break that down a bit further, I've noticed that it also has had a significant refining effect uh, upon the church and the people within the church. And let me explain what I mean by that. One of the greatest challenges that has existed within the Western church for many, many years now is that the consumeristic tendencies of our culture, the instantaneous consumeristic aspects of our culture has seeped its way into how people experience faith. What I mean by that is that our churches and technology had reached a point where they gave everybody everything they needed instantaneously. The best of the best preaching, the best of the best music. Um, you You don't need to buy a Bible anymore, just download a Bible. And those are not outright bad things. But the negative side to those things is that people had stopped understanding how to feed themselves, how to actually spiritually, personally engage in things because it was instantaneously available at the best of the best at all times for everything. Um, For example, you know, the Bible was taught through podcasts and through sermons and people didn't feel the greatest need to, to read and study the Bible on their own anymore. People had stopped praying to the same extent as they used to historically because they would just talk to the pastor or they could download a prayer app or they would come to church once a week and the pastor would pray for them. People would bring their kids to Sunday school for an hour on Sunday and the church would educate their kids in spiritual things, but then nothing was spoken of it in the home for the next six days. That was sort of the tendencies that had started to emerge in the churches, especially in the Western world. Now, the church is partially to blame for that, for providing all of those things in that nature, but so too individuals are partially responsible for allowing themselves to not continue to feed themselves. But when the church is closed, that all stopped. Like when limitations came on for what we can and can't do for the safety of everybody, that that all stopped. It was like when a restaurant closes, if you don't know how to cook your own food at home, you're going to starve. And it started to happen in some churches where people who had a shallow faith that they weren't able to to, uh, feed themselves spiritually, they started to starve. They started to even fade away and back away from the faith. And this refining started to happen within the people within the church. Um, and, And so when that happened, they had a faith that wasn't able to stand the storm that had descended upon the world. Other people, however, felt the, the vacancy in their lives, and they pressed in. They leaned into that vacancy, and the church then shifted on what they do. And this is something that we've done over the last years. We've tried to shift on what we're doing to help educate, to train, to equip people to know how to take, uh, not exclusively, but primarily, personal responsibility for their own relationship with God. And we're seeing it happen in like dozens and dozens of people for each, each thing that we offer, and each thing we do, are, are pressing into that learning and growing in their faith. We also saw a shift in this nature on, on how churches do things, as I just mentioned. 
we're helping people to take that responsibility. And, and some of the things that we've done, we've had great attendance at, at Alpha, at Foundations, at Real Life Discipleship. Uh, life groups are still meeting online. Uh, young adults and youth are still happening. And the focus of what happens when those people gather or the focus of what's offered in those courses is to help people understand how do I, how do I raise up myself in the context of a church instead of being dependent upon the church to let that happen. And by extension, people are learning how to disciple others as well. And so we're seeing that bit of a refinement that's taking place in this past year, which is difficult and it's different. But it's, I think it's actually really exciting for the long-term implications of what it means to have people equipped to feed themselves and to feed those around them. Uh, it's really helping churches understand and be examples of finding new ways to live out their mission. And our mission at West Meadows is to invite people to experience new life with Jesus. So... So there's that aspect of people being, having their attention taken from themselves to God. There's a bit of a refinement that's happened within the church and within the people of the church. But also the other thing, and one of the final things I'll mention, is that COVID has accelerated two other radical changes. And the, I, don't, I use the word accelerated because it wasn't that these things didn't exist. It's sort of the trajectories that were happening, but it hit the fast forward button and accelerated the, um, the trajectory for the way the churches do ministry outside the walls of the church. And the first one is that it sent people into the world to care for others in the name of Jesus in a greater way than we had ever seen before. We're probably tired of hearing the phrase, we're in this together, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're tired of hearing that, but the reason we're tired of hearing it is because so many people from, from the church and otherwise were sent out to care for the needs of those around them. We made new relationships. Many met their neighbors for the first time. We heard stories coming into the church early on about how uh, every Sunday somebody would be driving out of, their, out of their garage and they'd see their neighbor doing lawn work and they never really connected with them. But now they were home Sunday and they could actually connect and meet their neighbor for the first time and have established a relationship. And in some cases, it even invited them to watch West Meadows at home uh, through, the, through the nature of that relationship being fostered. So we're seeing people move out beyond the walls of the church to go be the church instead of going to church in certain new ways it's possible. And so if you've had that experience or opportunity, the challenge I have for you is, is to consider how do we take that to the next step of, of living in word and deed, my faith before these people, and maybe even inviting them to Alpha in the fall to, to advance that relationship to see what spiritual impact it could have for eternity. But the other thing that accelerated was overnight, last March, when all of the closures started happening, everything started changing, that, that one week when the world changed for, this, for our generation. Overnight, thousands of churches around the globe went online. And it was like a gospel assault upon the world. Consider that. It's been known for many, many years that people from the general community have stopped voluntarily coming through the doors of the church to come ask spiritual questions. The season of that had passed. But in this moment, it's almost like, and I don't want to put any words in God's mouth, but it's almost like God was saying, if you don't want to come to me, I will take my message to you. And in this overnight, there is this gospel assault of thousands of churches who took the message of Jesus' grace, truth, and love 
to people around the world. And it is incredibly powerful and going strong to this very day. And, and Zach, you've been so, so instrumental and pivotal in helping us to make that transition, even when tech doesn't work sometimes. Yeah. There's still lots of tech that people don't see that is working right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is literally, we have people who watch, I don't know if you guys know this, but we have people who watch West Meadows at Home uh, in, in practically every province across Canada weekly, people in the States. I've heard of people in Germany and in Ireland as well. Yep. <laughs> who tune in. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is, yeah, absolutely, let's clap for that. Yeah. So we are, we are one of those examples of one of those churches who, who yes, we have an in-person gathering, but there, there is this massive movement to take the gospel to places that have never been before. Yeah. No, and it's super cool to be a part of. And uh, so we use this platform called Church Online Platform. So for those of you joining us online, hello, Church hey. Online Platform. <laughs> and as Mark mentioned, in March of last year, when the world changed and went online, literally within a week, we saw about 10,000 churches sign up to be a part of Church Online platform, and we were honored to be one of yeah, those churches. Just that one alone. There's lots of others, but just that one alone, 10,000. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And over that course, there was 7 million devices that were able to tune in and see the Word of God shared in many mm-hmm. different churches and platforms. Um, and some other stats that we have is there's a, that prayer button, right? If you ever joined us online in the bottom right-hand corner, uh, there was 1.4 million prayers, yeah. clicks on that button for people praying with chat hosts online. Um, and lastly, there's an opportunity for people to raise their hand to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I commit my life to Jesus, and that's called a salvation um, in our, the church online world. And there was one, uh, what's five, like, one million. That? One million. One million. From March to November of last year, one million people clicked that, yeah. that button. Amazing. There was a gospel yeah. assault yeah. on the world last year that took place. Uh, we're a part of that here at West Meadows. You know, mm-hmm. Our numbers are smaller than a million. Yep. <laughs> but, but, you know, I am blown away and I am proud that uh, up to today, uh, over the last, well, last year, basically, yep. the last 12 months, yeah. uh, 52 people at West Meadows have clicked that button. That is, that is, we're averaging just over one a week yeah. when the last stats came in. Yeah. And, and we're just thrilled with that, that uh, it's having this kingdom impact. So uh, in-person worship is not going anywhere. I, I predict that when things start to continue to settle down, that uh, probably about 70% of pre-COVID attendance will return to be primarily in-person. It's not going to be 100% because this new opportunity has emerged and, and, and new, new patterns and habits have taken root. But uh, 70% will return to in-person ministry. So uh, in-person is not going anywhere. But online is where the great opportunity is, where the greatest impact is being seen, and where the greatest growth for the sake of God's kingdom can be. It, it, it starts online. All of that, to call us back to what the purpose of all that, all of that is moving towards God's ultimate purpose which is to move people from their sin-dead lives to make them fully alive in Christ. So while some of these negative things that we're dealing with, some of these issues and the challenges around COVID, I would never say God has caused it, but he has permitted it. But even in the midst of permitting it, he is using it and, and to some degree redeeming it to still ultimately fulfill his greatest purpose, which is to draw people unto himself and to bring eternal salvation to them. So good. So good. So how can we pray for COVID? What do we do with this? Yeah, well, let's finish with that because we're going to pray here in a minute. So yeah, yeah how, do we, how do we pray in the midst of this? Uh, lots of things we could pray about, but there's three things I want to draw to your attention. Number one, um, this is, a, this is a, a situation that involves people, first and foremost. People are involved in this. There are those who have suffered loss. 
those who have uh, lost loved ones. Uh, we've talked earlier about those who have suffered financially during this time. There's also, aside from the health implications of this time we're in, there's also the relational and social issues which are, are just as significant uh, in terms of people being in isolation, the increase in depression, the relational breakdowns that are taking place. The, the, there's an increase in some pockets of the demographic in some places in suicide attempts. Especially amongst our youth in particular, we need to be praying for them during this time. Right now we're coming up to graduation time pretty soon, and just another reminder of the impact it has upon them. So we need to be praying for the people affected by this. I also invite us to pray for our medical professionals and our government officials, that they would have wisdom and endurance on navigating this difficult time. I also pray and invite you to join me in praying and participating to be part of loving them and not perpetuating hate towards them. One of the biggest challenges, I, I, I probably erased Facebook probably every four or five days, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'd take it back in because I feel like I have to be there. But I'm a sucker for the comments on the posts. And they just make me angry. They make me angry at how much hate is out there, how much negativity towards these people who are trying to make the best decisions in a situation that they've never come across before. And I, I, don't bet, I bet you none of them are going to claim they got it 100% right. But I hope and I believe that many of them will claim they put 100% effort into getting it right. And so if we can just love on them and not perpetuate negativity and hate towards those people. And then pray for the church as well. Things have changed. And change is not easy for everybody. Zach loves change. But not everyone's a Zach. (laughs) So uh, Zach gets excited when things move forward and advance in different ways. And I love that about him. But not everyone shares that, that personality with him. Some people struggle with the change that's happening. Um, others uh, press back, and it, and it causes a negative witness in the world around us. We you know, we'll get into stories of the media and whatnot, but we know that there's negative examples out there that, um, that don't serve the kingdom of God well, nor do they serve the witness of the Christian church as a whole well. Because it draws, we were talking about the staff meeting one day, is, is the implication of some of these things is that... Um, is that the world doesn't understand how to differentiate from one church to the other. They, there's an assumption that there's a degree of similarity amongst them all. And so when, when there's negative press that's going out there, but one, everyone gets lumped in there. And so uh, we need to do our best to make sure that we are sharing God's grace, truth, and love in the best ways possible that we can. And that's where I want our focus to be on, is upon us doing our part to, uh, to be a good witness, to advance the gospel, and to pray for those who, who need to know Christ, and pray for those who are struggling with change in the midst of the church that we currently have. So, anyways, I'll get off my soapbox on that one for a second. And let me just pray for us. Good. Heavenly Father, we pray for those right now who, uh, who are struggling with the implications of this COVID season we're in. We know, Lord, that falls in the category of those who have been uh, just personally health-wise affected by COVID talk to people each week who, who either have, are living in fear of waiting for a test to come back or who have received a positive test and don't know what the future holds. Lord, I pray for them that, that your peace would descend upon them. God, I pray for those also who are struggling with the current implications right now. We, we receive letters from missionaries around the world who have loved ones or who themselves are, are being intubated or have lost their lives to this disease. Think of those who have ongoing health implications weeks and months after they emerge and still have some of the health challenges. God, we pray for your mercy upon them. 
In the same sense, Lord, we pray for those who just are living in the implications. While they may not physically have been affected by this, emotionally and relationally, Lord, it weighs heavy upon them. God, I pray for your peace to descend upon their spirits. I pray for your people to come around them to encourage them, to share love and, and a time of just uh, of socializing in whatever way is appropriate in that situation to feed that need that exists with all of us. You created us to be social creatures, Lord. Help us to find a way to do that. Pray for our leaders, Lord. We thank you for them. We understand the humanness of them, that they will pray that they will do their very best to serve us and that we'll do our best to honor those that you've put in place of leadership around us and over us. And God, I pray for your church. I pray that we would not be known by division, but by unity. I pray we would not be known by what we are against, but what we are for. And I pray that we'd be known by our love, our love for you and our love for the world around, that people would come to know you as the God who is love, the God who came to show your grace, truth, and love for all people. We pray this in Jesus' name.